KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes, presenting Scene on the Screen with Jacqueline Coley, a new podcast about the people at NBC Universal and the movies that define them. Available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. From KCRW, I'm Kim Masters, and this is The Business. In her new memoir, I'm Leslie Effing Jones, the actress and stand-up comic talks about overcoming many hurdles in her life, including initially getting hired at Saturday Night Live to write rather than to perform. But maybe because she was older and wiser, by the time she got there, she wasn't intimidated by the man in charge. I would go and sit right by Lauren just to piss them off. And Lauren loved that because people did treat him like they were scared of him. I asked him one time, I said, you know everybody's scared of you, right? I said, do you want people to fear you or love you? And he said, I like the fear that turns into love. Leslie Jones recalls some of her childhood experiences of racism, the comedians who told her she'd never make it, and how she learned to trust her instincts at SNL. But first we banter. Stick around. It's the business from KCRW. I'm joined by my colleague in banter, Matt Bellany. Hello, Matt. Hi there. So I'm just going to check in on the strike. The parties are still talking. There's hope as long as they are talking and not running out of the room and calling each other names. So we cross our fingers for an agreement in the next several days. Meanwhile, I will turn to, I think, one of the more unexpected stories of the week. Casey Bloys, who runs HBO and HBO Max and is very respected and I will note very press savvy, for some reason decided to ask his staff to make fake Twitter accounts and clap back at critics who said things about his shows that he didn't agree with. For example, Alan Sepinwall of Rolling Stone didn't give Mayor of Easttown the respect that Casey Bloys thought it deserved. So he was instructing his staff, and this is part of a lawsuit. This was revealed through a lawsuit where there's some texts that have been uncovered between Casey and one of his staff. And the staffer is saying, his majesty, I think, is, is requiring us to make another fake Twitter account. This is so inconsistent with the image that most of us have of Casey Bloys, who, as I said, it seems very smart, press savvy, and not prone to do embarrassing things like this that could come out in a lawsuit. No, and it's also not very on brand for HBO. And I think that's why this is getting so much attention after the initial Rolling Stone report. Because let's be honest, most marketing departments do this kind of thing. They try to control the conversation online. There's been reports about some critics who have been paid to have their reviews appear on Rotten Tomatoes. This is a long tradition of studios trying to manipulate the conversation online. But because (laughs) it's Casey Boys and because it's HBO and because there's direct involvement of the head of the network in this stuff, I think that's why it's getting attention. And it doesn't look good. It looks petty. It looks kind of small. But I will say, if I was a creator at HBO, I'd be happy to know that the head of the network is willing to go to this (laughs) desk to defend my honor. (laughs) Well, you know, he was just in front of the press. He said it was dumb. He said it was during the pandemic. So maybe he was getting a little loopy. I will say to your point, though, you know, when I wrote a Justice League story, and this is before Warner Brothers Discovery was even Warner Brothers Discovery. It was still owned by AT&T. I wrote a piece about Justice League that was a very controversial battle behind the scenes on the movie. And For sure, I would see tweets from someone who I would swear was one of the publicists at Warner Brothers with the exact talking points that they had tried to get me to put into the story. So I don't even think Casey's the only one. 
And no, and there's a lot of allegations around the Snyderverse about bots and whether paid for bots were involved. We saw a little bit of that in the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial where there was a big online movement against Amber Heard and there were questions as to whether the Johnny Depp side was kind of stoking that via paid stuff. I mean, there's I just assume that everything that goes on online is kind of nefarious and studios are going to use whatever levers they have available to them. It's just that having the top of HBO involved in this is just not a very good look, especially with the media who's got to cover these shows from now on. Yeah, well, I'm told after he made the comments, he apologized to Alan Sepinwall of Rolling Stone. So he's trying to mend his fences. And, uh, you know, I think it'll be forgotten. But uh, it was definitely an embarrassing moment for the company and for Casey Bloys. Let me pivot to Disney. We've had this back and forth. Is Disney going to buy Hulu from Comcast? Or is Comcast going to buy Hulu from Disney? This is part of an earlier deal where one had to buy from the other. And for a while, it certainly looked like Bob Iger was not going to buy Hulu. And Comcast, therefore, was going to buy Hulu because this is, as I said, part of an earlier deal. But Disney has now pivoted and said they are, in fact, buying Hulu. I'm glad as a consumer. You know, I want Hulu to be cared for and maintained and not destroyed. Not that Comcast necessarily would, but somehow, you know, they've got the FX piece of it that was producing so much good programming. So now the question is going to be, you know, what price do they have to pay? And the agreement going back, the agreement when it was made was that the minimum valuation of Hulu was going to be $27.5 billion. Disney has paid a portion of that, as you you know, and the question will be still, what is the ultimate value of Hulu? Yeah, and that's what they are going to have a process for over the next year. There's going to be appraisers on both sides that will look at what this asset would get if it were on the open market and someone were coming in to buy it. It's a great asset. It's got 48 million customers in the U.S. It is very good in the advertising business, which all of these streamers now want to be in. And it is one of the earlier streamers. It's got a brand as the kind of next day place for television. And they're going to have to figure out what this would get on the open market. If they can't come up with a valuation that is close to one another, they will then hire a third appraiser to come in and get their own independent valuation of this. And then the difference between the third one and the lower of the two others will be the ultimate valuation. And I think Disney is hoping that this will be very close to that floor. But I'm suspecting that given where Hulu is and given the streaming wars and the era we're just coming out of, I have a feeling that Hulu will be valued at about 30 or more than $30 billion. Well, that's pretty close to the floor, so I guess Disney couldn't complain well, too much. give or take a few billion. <laughs> give or take a few billion, but, you know, it could be worse. I'll just say it could be worse. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. That's Matt Bellany, founding partner of Puck News. Well... I just broke up with somebody. Well, it wasn't really a breakup. It was a, a booty call I might have took too serious. <laughs> that shit happens sometimes, you know? Saturday Night Live alum Leslie Jones had years of stand-up comedy under her belt when she joined the show as a writer in 2014. She was quickly promoted to the cast, where she performed until 2019, earning three Emmy nominations along the way. Jones began her career in 1987 and faced criticism from several established comedians who said she wouldn't make it in the business because she didn't know how to be herself on stage. But with time and some hard knocks, she became ever more free to show the world exactly who she is. Hence the title of her memoir, I'm Leslie Effing Jones. 
This week, we're breaking our usual format. Leslie Jones is so much woman that Eric Diggins and I decided to team up for the interview. You are brutally honest in this book. Uh, You talk about very rough things that happened in your life. You, You tell on yourself your scarily bad behavior as a kid at one point. But the thing I wanted to start maybe with is the impact that the death of your brother had on you. Because at one point in your book, you say, death gave me everything. And that is quite a line. And I think it would be great if you could explain how that worked. Um, well, damn, you just got right to it, huh? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm not shy. <laughs> I mean, good grief. It's just like, I, I didn't want to start off like this, but you did. <laughs> <laughs> I can go back. Well, I mean, I answered the question. I answered the question. First of all, at the death of my brother happened after maybe, I think, like 10 years later after both of my parents had passed away, like six months within each other. So it was like when something like that happens so close to you, I don't think people really experience death until they lose someone that is detrimental in their daily routine. Like when right. you lose someone really close to you, that's part of your equation. That's when death really just goes, hey, man, hey, hey, you living you ain't you living right now, but you can be dead. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like it's yeah. like a fire under your ass. Like it should definitely never be something that slows you down. If anything, it should make you really go, oh, well, let me go apply for that damn job that I thought I might can get. Cause death is way more final than me just getting told that I can't have that job. So when my brother passed away, it was it wasn't even an urgency as much as it was more of like, oh, well, you have no choice but to be who you are because this person that you hold in back is actually funnier than the person that you put in forward. So yeah, it gave me something worser than bombing on stage or something worser than not making it. Does that right. make sense? Yes, and I think it freed you to do this material that you felt was closer to who you are. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, it's interesting. Like, I thought it was really amazing how transparent you were. And reading the book feels like it's just like talking to you, which is, right. you know, it's, it's it's written really well, too. So I was moved by that moment where you talked about meeting that little girl at the Key Sweat concert and encouraging her. And then also this moment you talked about in your childhood where— you realize that the some of the names that your friends' parents were mm-hmm. calling you were racist. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm African-American, and I had that moment where my mom had to sit me down and say, oh, mm-hmm. honey, this is why they're doing that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and suddenly everything changes. And, mm-hmm. and I know you talk about it in the book, but I was hoping you could talk about that a little bit more and particularly talk about how that may have affected how you move forward in show business. Well, you know, so weird is just like um, when we were coming up in Fort Bragg, like we were military children. So when we were playing games and running around with each other, it wasn't even about color as much as we were military kids. So when we Mm. went to school, we were military kids and there were regular kids. So it was more of like that. The race thing was something that we knew about, but we just thought our parents Yeah, that's our parents' shit. Like, we just thought of it as grown-up stuff. So it just wasn't, like, something that... Because everybody dated everybody or everybody had a crush on everybody or everybody 
that had friends. Like I, I had all white girls because you're in Fort Bragg. I had black friends, but I had it was so weird because I had never seen any of the stuff that I saw after my eyes was open after that. And then everything is like almost a curtain being snatched down because then I noticed that the little apartment thing that we lived in, Mm because, you know, there were sections and stuff. The section we lived in, the black people was on one side and the white people was on the other side. I never even noticed that. Mm -hmm. I never even noticed that. Like, I Mm -hmm. never noticed that this dude had a German shepherd that attacked black things. I didn't understand that it meant black people. I didn't understand. I didn't know that. I just thought he didn't like black things. Does that make sense? Like, I thought the dog was just triggered... By the totally color black, sense. that's that's right. literally not even, it's just all that stuff starts waking up in your head. And that's when your mom and your dad are smart enough, at least my parents was, to sit me down and devastate it. My mom was devastated she had to tell me that stuff. I just feel sorry for my parents. Let me move ahead into where you're getting into the business, which there's a sort of a repeat thing going on earlier in your career where people keep saying to you, people like Chris Rock or other people, they say to you, you're not ready. I think Jamie Foxx at one point said to you, you know, go live some more so that you Mm -hmm. can find the material. And I don't know, at the time, I guess I would have been thinking, what do you mean I'm not ready? I'm funny. (laughs) But uh, you listened, I think, right? Well, it's so funny because Chris, Chris, if you listen to the audio, Chris, he does my uh, he, what they call it the foreword or whatever is that what they call it? Yeah, mm-hmm. the foreword. Yeah, yeah, I forgot what they call that. But he did, and he did it in audio also, and he also intercepted and said, "I never said <laughs> this." Is what he said, "I never said <laughs> that she wasn't ready. I said that they wasn't ready for her." And I was like, "No, sir." <laughs> I was there. Yeah. Fact check so, coming from Leslie. <laughs> it's so funny because I will tell you, and I'm not going to reveal this comic's name. There's a list of comics that have told me you'll never be famous. And Mm. and I'm not going to tell you who to set, but it's somebody famous. And uh, you'll never be famous. You'll never make it because you don't know how to be you on stage. And it's like one of those general comments that you go, go fuck yourself. You literally have never seen me perform except for on this thing where I have to do 10 minutes. And let me explain something to you. When I stepped into this game, I was stepping out of a dope game. Like, I was stepping Mm. out of where my brother was one of the biggest dope dealers. I knew dope dealers. I've seen a lot of stuff. So when you come out of that world into this world, this world was pussy world. Like, y'all cupcakes. Like, so... (laughs) Candy Do you hear what I'm saying? So you get motherfuckers that come up to you and come at you like, you're tough. You be like, motherfucker, I'll have the whole city of Compton up here at this. You don't scare me that way. So whenever comics would come at me like that, I would just be like, okay, this is like an 80s movie. Why are you messing with my robot if that robot ain't shit? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you took your time out to come over here and tell me I wasn't shit or tell me that I couldn't do something. But if I really was that person, you wouldn't spend time on telling me that because I exactly. wouldn't be a bother to you, right? Am I correct? Mm-hmm. Like you Absolutely. only tell stuff Absolutely. that to people who you're threatened by. Like, oh yeah, you're not good. Well, if I'm not good, then why are you talking to me? Mm-hmm. I want to ask you about another moment in the book where you auditioned for Saturday Night Live. And at some point you talked to Keenan Thompson about the interview that he gave mm-hmm. where he said that black female comics weren't ready for SNL. And even though he wound up becoming somebody who supported you on the show later, can you talk a little bit about 
that conversation and joining SNL in that way? Yeah, and first, let me just say this, so it be known for both for you and for everybody, Keenan was misquoted. Mm-hmm. And, okay. and that's what I found out. The day that I talked to he let me know they misquoted me. You know how when you have an interview and they take what it is that you want, they want to, here is the clickbait, and they misquoted him. He didn't say that black women wasn't He said that they can't find the black women who are actually ready to do SNL. It's not the same thing. Do you understand? Like, you can go yep. to the groundlings. Yep. You can go to Yale. You can go to Harvard and find all the white girls. You got to right. go to the DMV and find a funny black girl. <laughs> now, Chris says that in the foreword. Exactly. But when I read it, I was just sort of like, isn't he letting them off the hook a little bit? I mean, come no, on No, no, no. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely not. It's really, really what it is, homie. Like, listen, mm. I've been doing comedy since 1987. You'd be surprised how many people actually really still know about me. This industry really, really, you think it was diverse and including, it wasn't. It is now. It's literally becoming that because it's slow. It's very slow. So, yes, that is is Mm. true. It's like this Mm. is the one thing that I've learned through my life. There's a lot of white people that ain't actually racist. They just have never dealt with black people. And I'm, I'm imagine, not trying imagine to imagine that. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not trying to be funny or defending. But so there are actually some white people who just really don't know about black folks. And they don't have no hatred or anything. They just dumb to the fact of it. And I think that this industry has a lot of that in it because they take chances. In other words, how can I put this? Oh, I hate to say it this way. It's just like we are spice. We're a spice that is hard to fuck with. Like, ooh, if you mm. ain't never cooked with mm. paprika, yeah. ooh, you're going to be yeah. nervous when you use paprika. Like, And I hate <laughs> to say it that way. It's like <laughs> I brought in this little breath of fresh air that is like, ooh, this is yes, yes. Like, And many of us have done that. Flip Wilson, Red Fox, Richard, all these people Richard have Bryant. brought yeah. that in. And it's just a, a mechanism of how much people can take is really not knowing what to do with a person like me. Coming up after the break, Leslie Jones shares why she was never afraid of her widely feared boss at SNL. You're listening to The Business from KCRW. KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes. Join Jacqueline Coley as she hosts a brand new podcast, Seen on the Screen. Meet the innovative people at NBC Universal as they share their journeys, inspirations, and the movies that define them. Each episode is an intimate and fun conversation about the impact of film. Seen on the screen is available now wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. This is The Business, and I'm Kim Masters. This week, Eric Deggins and I teamed up to talk to actress and stand-up comedian Leslie Jones. We discussed the challenges and highlights of her career, recounted in her memoir, I'm Leslie Effing Jones. After decades of honing her stand-up material, Jones auditioned for Saturday Night Live in 2013. She was disappointed when she was hired as a writer, but she soon joined the show as a cast member. 
You say in the book that Lorne Michaels said to you, I never knew I needed you until I saw you. I don't know what you are. Which yes. sounds like a, and, yeah. and, and what made me love him was that he actually said that because I have been wanting people to actually admit it. And that's to me, and this is when I tell mm. artists, that is a very prevalent thing in this business. You have to know who you are so you can show them. I can't explain it. It's a numbers thing. And this is the one thing I had to learn about Lauren. Like Lauren is not just making New York and Chicago and LA happy. He got to deal with Omaha, Nebraska. He got to deal with West Virginia. (laughs) You know, he's got to do North Carolina. When I stepped into SNL, yeah, I was cocky as shit because I was like, I've been doing comedy for this long and you can't tell me nothing about comedy. But I sat at that table read and let me tell you something. I was at the first time I had the table read, I sat between A.D. Bryan and Taryn Killer, and mm. right across from Keenan and right diagonal to Kate and right diagonal to Cecily Strong. And let me explain something to you about how they are not punks about what they do. It was mm. like seeing magic being performed in front of you. Keenan can literally do any accent. Do you understand? <laughs> Cecily mm-hmm. makes up characters in her head and then performs them. Do you know how much talent that is? Oh, yeah, they made me go, oh, yeah, uh, you good at what you do, bitch, but I'm good at what I do, too. <laughs> you, do, do you understand what I'm saying? So when we're on the outside looking in, you thinking I this, this, and this, that shit has been on TV for as long as it's been on TV for a reason. Right. Yes. So, yes, and it is bittersweet because it's some things I wish they would break because I was in there in the machine and like, no, you could do this different. No, you could do this different. We do the, but, you know, that's an institution. Like shooting Whoopi Goldberg. You know, why didn't they let you do that? Yeah, like, and, and really, and see, it's, it's, I still, because I told Whoopi about that. And Whoopi was like, we totally would have done it. But now, like, looking on it with a rested mind, you go... Yeah, they wouldn't go Maybe shoot. Not. Maybe I not. mean, do you know how many people would have been horrified? They would have been <laughs> horrified. Like I, <laughs> I want to explain for the listeners that there's a story in the book about you, uh, Leslie, had proposed this skit on SNL where you would shoot Whoopi Goldberg, and then everybody at the update desk would be horrified. And Lauren said, "We're not shooting Whoopi Goldberg." Yeah, yeah, <laughs> everybody, everybody was saying that. We was pitching it to all the writers, and they was like. No, you can't shoot Whoopi Goldberg on TV. And the update team was like, listen, you're going to sit here and try to sell it to us. Just write it then. And this is what me and Keenan thought was so funny, was that he shot Whoopi Goldberg, but it was the breaks. Like, because you know how, have you ever, right. this is back in the day when you would go technical difficulties. They put that yeah. little picture up there and play the yeah. music. So we had different pictures of Lauren, like riding the moped or, and then that, that little music playing in the back. And he's like, I'll be back, baby. I'll be on my fire. And we even had him read it. That, to me, we were, man, we was laughing so hard at that table, man. And then at one point, Lauren just looked up and just looked and he said, you know we're not going to shoot Whoopi Goldberg on national TV. And everybody (laughs) fell out. Everybody (laughs) fell out laughing. We were like, damn. (laughs) That, that, That was probably worth it. So I have to ask you, too, like, you talked just a minute ago about how Black folks can sometimes be a spice they don't know what to do with. There's a part in the book where you talk about feeling on the show like they were 
presenting you in a stereotypical way in some of the sketches and and mm-hmm. feeling like you had to break out of that. And it's interesting because as a viewer, I was watching it and thinking the same thing, but mm-hmm. I thought that was how you wanted to present yourself. Well, uh, I mean, of course you think that because you think, hey, she's on TV doing the shit, right? You know? right so it's right. like, that's why I always tell people, like, when you're sitting and watching TV, you're watching TV. That's pretend land. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's like, all right, I am the quarterback that now wants to be recruited. Does that make sense? So yeah. in this world, you need to show them that you're a team player. You need to show them that you're going to do the material. Because like writers don't want to hear, hey, I didn't like those characters that they were That Writers don't, writers want to hear that you're a performer that's going to at least talk to them and work out their shit. So you want to be able to leave a place like SNL and still be able to go work in other places. SNL, that's when you start thinking, hey, SNL is not going to be my life thing. SNL is now a catapult. And SNL now is giving me a wider portfolio because now the skills that I'm learning here is skills I'm going to use outside of SNL. So, yeah, where you thought that I may have been wanting to do some of the characters, no, it's part of the resume. Hey, you know that I can be on live TV. Does that make sense? I mean, for you, it was more than just going on live TV because they slotted you in as a writer and you had mm-hmm. to sort of break your way out of that. You weren't a sketch comedian. So when they first was, even yeah. talked about you, you were like, I'm a stand-up. I don't do sketch comedy. And they just kind of put you in these different places. And sometimes you had to kind of break out of them. Yeah. it's well, And then again, when I walk into situations, I already know who I am. And you already know what these people are going to try to pull. So when you start seeing that's what they're doing, because you make the decision of, okay, hey, okay, they're doing this. Let's talk to them. Let's see if they're willing to let's go this way. Oh, they're not going that way. Okay, so now let me use this as the engine that's going to get me something else. Because it was more of like, listen, I'm going to use this because I got to go before I can't go. Because I know what it is SNL wanted me to be. But I was like, nah, that's not my intentions. It's much like when I talk to my aunt. And my aunt don't really know about the business. And she's like, why don't you just move to Memphis and open up a comedy club? You go, shut up. You don't understand what my destiny is. <laughs> like, so, so like yeah, that'll be the worst thing to happen to me. So you have to you have to know yourself, because if you don't know yourself getting into this business, they will make you what they want to make you. So you just and, and I'm strong enough to go. No, motherfuckers. My attitude and my position, my face, my whole self doesn't play against myself. So if I'm doing something unnatural, it comes off that because it I don't do I don't deal with that. So at some point I would have had to go anyway because it would stop being authentic. And that's what it started feeling like. Like, listen, I started off loving on Colin. Now y'all done turned this into a trick. Okay. I started <laughs> off using some of the faces that my mom and my dad would make. And now y'all using this as a trick. It literally was known as the Leslie look. So it's just like, okay, y'all want to do that, but let me show you what you actually can do with me. Because see, I'm going to show you that I'm a G even when I leave here. Because mm. see, you dealing with kids don't, that don't know who the fuck they are. And yes, you're helping them develop into what they could be in this business. But I already know what I am. You got the opportunity to work with me because I am a freelance artist that came here and lends you my talents for a certain amount of time. It's now time for me to take my tractor back. Uh, And it kind of brings it around to the hard question I asked you in the beginning, because you had lost your fear. Like Everybody's scared of Lorne Michaels. I know very important people in Hollywood who are scared of Lorne Michaels, but you were not. Yeah, because I'm 47. Well, I was 47 when I... 
I used to tell them, hey, y'all don't scare me because when we fill out an insurance form, me and you check the same box. We're in the same mm-hmm. age range. Like, I'm old, too. So <laughs> the stuff that he would do to scare the kids was hilarious to me because I was like, you're talking to a grown-ass woman. Like, they would do stuff like, I don't know if it was a mind game or if it was more of a discipline thing, but like, you know, oh, you can only sit in this part of the restaurant. I said, where the fuck I want to sit? Like, I'm a grown-ass woman. If I want to sit over here, I'm going to sit over here. What you talking about, class? What? Only certain people can sit by Lauren. I would go and sit right by Lauren just to piss them off. I would literally <laughs> sit in Lauren's booth. And Lauren loved that. He loved it because people did treat him like they were scared of him. I asked him one time, I said, you know everybody's scared of you, right? I was like, it's really weird. Do you, do you know that everybody's scared of you? I said, do you want people to fear you or love you? And he said, I like the fear that turns into love. Mm-hmm. I said, that's the most gangster shit I've ever heard in my fucking life. <laughs> like, and real talk. And But he was a real person. Like, he was more of like, if you want to be scared of me, be scared of me. I don't give a shit. Like, he would walk up the hallway and people, you could see people running. I would run <laughs> towards him. He loved it. Right. It's annoying how people just don't know how to be grownups. Oh, yeah, no. Well. Yeah. Some of the tricks that they would pull on the little young kids. Yeah, it didn't work on me because I'm a grown ass woman. <laughs> <laughs> Leslie Jones is a star of stage and screen. Her memoir, Leslie Jones, is available everywhere. Thank you so much for joining Eric and me. Well, thank you for having me. Shoot, that was fun. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. It it got better, right? It started out a little rough. I was like, she hit me with that. I'm like, oh, damn. Let me get a sip of this water here. Then what's she going to (laughs) ask? (laughs) <laughs> Eric knows how yeah, I am Yeah, Kim don't play Kim don't play <laughs> I see I was ready for you, Kim I was ready And that's the business Joshua Farnham produced and edited today's program With help this week from John Meek and Nick Lamponi Who mixed the show You can stream the business As well as other great KCRW shows On KCRW.com Or wherever you get your podcasts I'm Kim Masters We'll see you next week on The Business KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes, presenting Scene on the Screen with Jacqueline Coley, a new podcast about the people at NBC Universal and the movies that define them. Available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.